Good morning, everyone. My name is Brian Emmett, filling in for Alex this morning. Alex is down in Pittsburgh. Our pastor there, Jaime, was called out of town this weekend to attend the funeral of um, a, a teacher and a mentor who had been so formative in Jaime's life. So Alex is filling in for Jaime, and I'm filling in for Alex. If you're new here this morning, in person or online, welcome. We're so glad you're here. And be sure to come back next Sunday to hear Alex. Well, welcome to week three of our Hungry for God series. We humans are hungry creatures, and we don't just hunger for three squares a day and a warm place to sleep at night. We hunger for love, for acceptance and belonging, for power and control, for wealth and status, for understanding and knowledge, for grace and mercy and forgiveness, and the list goes on and on and on. We are hungry creatures. Hungry for God. Does that fit you? Is that among your hungers? For some of us, the answer may well be, yes, it does. I am hungry for more of God. I want, I want to know God better. I want to be better able to love and serve the God who so loves and serves me. For some of us, the answer may well be, no, thanks, not interested. Maybe you feel like you tried this God stuff and it didn't work. Maybe you've had some experience of church or church folk feeding you things that you now think are untrue or you're still really uncertain about. Or maybe you just feel that you're pretty happy with the way things are. You're running your life pretty well and can't see how any God stuff would add anything to the mix. And for some of us, the answer may be more complicated. I know what hunger for food or hunger for success feels like, and, and I think I know what to do about trying to meet those kinds of hungers, but what does hungry for God mean? What, what does more of God look like, feel like, work like in, in my life? Longer church services? Hours and hours and hours spent in prayer and meditation and Bible study. Some kind of supernatural experience, you know, holy roller stuff. Does hunger for God mean that I have to become a monk or a martyr? Not sure about that. Well, whoever you are, wherever you're coming from, you're welcome here. Churches need people like all of us. Yes, we need people who are raising good questions. We need people whose doubts are understandable and in fact, in some ways, doubts that some of us share too. We need people whose objections are thoughtful and deserve thoughtful responses. And we need people who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and maybe can help the rest of us hunger for God more than we do. And this might be a good moment for me to just give another quick touch on that Bring It class or series that we're going to start next week. Michelle's amazing. She found a picture of me from my college days, <laughs> 50 years younger, 50 pounds heavier or lighter, and at least 50 times more hip. But uh, 
no, it's actually not me, but Terry and I uh, just want to bring lunch and invite you to bring questions. It's fine to come even if you're not sure what you know your questions might be. Terry and I are not going to be God's answer men. You know, you bring a question, we're going to bring you the answer. It'll be much more of a free-form, free-flowing conversation among people who really are interested in wrestling with real questions. So you're invited. We're going to do it for four Sundays in a row. You can come once. You can come all four Sundays. We're going to bring the pizza and the drinks. You bring the questions. Now, hungry for God. We are what we eat. If we feed our bodies junk food and empty calories, it hurts our health. If we feed our hunger for relationships and friendships in toxic ways with toxic people, we poison our relational lives. If we feed our hunger for success and accomplishment and recognition with perfectionism and workaholism, our hearts Our lives become emaciated and exhausted. And if, if we learn how to hunger for God, if we learn how God intends to feed and satisfy that hunger, is it possible, is it possible that our lives, your life, might thrive and flourish and be fruitful in ways we can't even imagine. Anyone here now love a particular food or dish that at first you hated? Any of us, any of you just knew, you just knew that you were not going to like food X, not ever, not ever, and then you discovered that X was delicious wonderful, and yes, may I please have at least another helping of X. Anyone had to change your eating habits for health reasons, and you're glad you did. You know, discovering that eating food that's actually good for you really is better for you, that you feel better, you feel better than you do after a bag of Cheetos and a couple of quarts of super premium ice cream. Even if it took some time, some work for you to get there? Could hunger for God work something like that? Something that's both built into us in some way and also something of an acquired taste. Now the passage that uh, Raquel proclaimed for us this morning, great job on the hard part, right? What was the hard part? Canaanites, Hittites, saw those ites, and uh, Raquel really nailed it. So the passage we're in this morning is just a really rich, dense, complex, wonderful exploration of what it might look like for us to be hungry for God. It's an ancient story that's our story, too. Let's set the stage a little bit. We're in the middle of an intense, dramatic, and multi-layered crisis in the story of Israel. We're with Moses and the people of Israel on the far side of the Red Sea. God has delivered his people from their slavery in Egypt. 
You might remember Pharaoh's hard heart, the ten plagues, the Passover, crossing through the Red Sea as if it were dry ground, the Egyptians not making it across. Ten Commandments, a promised land ahead. That's, that's where we are in the story. And so we heard these words. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out your enemies. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you. Because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. Well, at first, this sounds like a pretty normal part of that story of Israel, you know, leaving Egypt, wandering around in the desert, and every so often God says, leave this place and move forward, you know, to the place that I'm going to show you. But you caught the conflict, didn't you? You might have seen those underlined parts. God speaks of the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He promises to drive out their enemies. He promises that the land will indeed be flowing with milk and honey. God will give the gifts he promised, but now it's suddenly you, Moses, and the people you brought up out of Egypt. And what's this business about an angel leading the way? Wasn't that God's job? And then... This heart of the crisis, I will not go with you. What happened to bring things to this terrible moment where God agrees to keep his promises, give his gifts, but refuses to personally accompany his people any further? Well, the golden calf is what happened. So let's fill in a bit more of background to this really dramatic conflict that we're in the middle of this morning. Just before our passage, God has called Moses up to the top of Mount Sinai there to give him the Ten Commandments. And Moses was up there a while, 40 days and 40 nights. And the people waiting began to grow restless, anxious, impatient. They began to get hungry. Here's how it goes. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, Moses' brother and second in command, and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought brought us up out of Egypt. Isn't that interesting? Is this, this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So Aaron answered them, Take off your gold earrings that you, your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron, and he took what they handed him and made it into an idol in the shape of a calf. And then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Facing some uncertainty, the people hunger for certainty. Facing what seems to be nothing happening, they hunger to make something happen on their own. Facing boredom, they manufacture some excitement. Feeling some anxiety around how they're going to survive, they opt for spiritual junk food. Facing this God they cannot see and control, this God not at their beck and call, they hunger to make for themselves a God they can see and control 
because they made it. A God scaled down to their size. A God impressively shiny on the outside, but hollow on the inside. A God they're familiar with, a God they understand. They know calves, they get calves. Bearers of God's image, made in God's image and likeness, they now hunger to be led by the image of a dumb beast, to be led by a God who will answer to them rather than by the God to whom they are answerable. Now, here's how the Bible always talks about idols. Idolatry means making a good thing into God. And here's what Scripture says idolatry does to us. And just think for a moment back to the, that, that opening uh, Hungry for God site, uh, sequence. Remember all the things that people do, you know, reading books and sports and drugs and, and rock and roll and, and exercise. Most all of those were good things. But when we take a good thing and make it God, here's what Scripture says happened. Those who make idols will become like the idols they make. In other words, idols turn us into people who, like the golden calf, may be shiny and impressive on the outside, but hollow and empty on the inside. Idols create spiritual starvation. We're starving, but our idols cannot truly nourish us. Anxious and impatient, we keep settling for spiritual junk food and empty calories. So back to the story. Just as the golden calf idol party gets started, Moses returns. Much unhappiness ensues, and there follows a very uneasy, unsettled, peace is the wrong word for it, a very uneasy, unsettled situation between the Lord and his people. Now, if you were in Moses' sandals at this point, what would you be hungry for? Maybe a totally fresh start. And in fact, as Moses was walking down the mountain, God offered to make a fresh start with Moses. God actually said, Moses, how about if I just give up on this Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob people and start the people of Moses. Moses declines the offer. Moses could hunger at this point just to get away from it all. To go back to herding sheep. Maybe find a nice condo on the banks of the Nile back in Egypt. Or maybe a really quiet cabin in the middle of nowhere. A place where he wouldn't have to think about God or God's promises or God's people. Who wouldn't blame him for cashing out at this point? But let's look instead at what Moses actually was hungry for. It plays out in this high-stakes dialogue, a desperate negotiation, if you will, between Moses and the Lord. And Moses makes three requests of God. Let's, let's listen to him again. Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, Lord, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. 
You have said, I know you by name and, I've, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. And the Lord replied, my presence will go with you. and I will give you rest. Teach me your ways that I might know you, Moses asks. Now, Moses has already logged a lot of miles on his Godometer. He's seen God do all kinds of mighty and amazing things and has just come from 40 days and 40 nights in communion with God Almighty on the top of Mount Sinai. Anything left to learn? How about us? How about you? Anything left for you to learn about God, of God's ways? Is it possible to know God better than we do now? And if so, are you hungry for that? Would you settle for God's gifts and blessings without God? Moses would not. And it sounds like crisis averted, right? Moses appeals to God, teach me your ways. And, and God says, yep, my presence will go with you. But did you catch the me language in Moses' first request? I underlined all the me, me words. And now listen to where Moses goes the second time. Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you were, that you were pleased with me and with your people if you don't go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I'm pleased with you. And I know you by name. So Moses' hunger for God includes a hunger for God's people. Moses doesn't want God only to go with him, with Moses. He wants God to go with us, with your people. Moses' hunger for God includes Moses' desire that he would become and he would be the right kind of person, the right sort of leader, even and especially for that stiff-necked, hard-hearted, rebellious, disobedient, murmuring, complaining, idol-making, idol-worshiping people. For the second time, God says yes. Crisis averted, right? But Moses isn't done. He's still hungry. And then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, but you cannot see my face, for no one may see my face and live. And then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock, and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. There's a lot going on here. And I can't tell you about all of it. But 
when Moses asks this third time, having already gotten two yeses from God, and Moses isn't done yet, and he says, show me your glory, what's he looking for? What's he asking for? He isn't asking for some kind of spiritual goosebumps. He's not asking for earthquake, storm, wind, and fire. He's not trying to get back to the burning bush where God first arrested him. He's not asking merely to retrace whatever God ground he's already covered. Moses wants to know God. He wants to become more and more the kind of person who is at home in the presence of God. Who is more and more at home walking with God and in the ways of God. And so he says, he asks, show me your glory. God's glory is who God is is. Show me your glory means let me see, let me know who you really are, what I most want, what I most need, even after all my years, even after all I've experienced, even after all that I've already come to know about who you are, Lord, what I most need, what I most hunger for is you. Not just for what you can do for me, not merely for gifts and blessings. I'm hungry for who you are. For me and for your people. And for the third time, God says, yes. Yes, Moses, I will give you what you hunger for. I will give you more of myself. I will show you my glory. And God still says yes. Even to people like us even to people like me, even to people like you. Even after all the ways we have worshipped our calf idols and even when we've tried all kinds of ways to satisfy our hunger everywhere else but in the God who created us to be hungry for him. Now, we're given no idea what Moses saw or experienced as God's glory passed by. But we know what he heard in the presence of that glory. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. The God who decades earlier had revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, had told Moses his unpronounceable name, which faithful Jewish people even today will not pronounce. We don't actually know how to pronounce that name of God. Your Bible says something like it means, I am who I am. Who is God? I am who I am. And now that Lord, that God, reveals to Moses what that name means. And it's a sevenfold glory. Moses is in the presence of the God who is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, 
maintaining love to thousands, not just thousands of people, but to thousands of generations, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, and the giver and the doer of justice. That's what God's name means. That's what God's glory is. As you think about what you want set at your funeral or carved on your tombstone, no one really wants it to be. He owned three houses and a bunch of fast cars. She was worth a million dollars. He was famous for his collection of vintage cars, vintage records, and vintage wines. She numbered celebrities among her friends. Do you see it? Shiny on the outside, empty on the inside. What we hope, what you hope will be said at your funeral has to do with the kind of person you became, the kind of person you were, the quality and substance of your heart in your life, the ways in which your character and the impact, any impacts for good you may have made have helped people to see the face of God. What we really hunger for is to become and to be the right kind of people, to be a truly, deeply good man, a truly, deeply good woman, to be a person of tested and proven character, to be trustworthy, dependable, reliable, full of wisdom, generous and loving, to be compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. Wait a minute! You want to be like God! Which is what God has created you to be. What we really hunger for is to become and to be the right kind of people. That's what your deepest hunger is. That's why all of our idols always disappoint. And the reason that hunger is in you is because God has created you for himself and your heart will always hunger until God himself and God alone is the satisfaction of your soul. Until we are nourished by him for whom we have been created. To truly satisfy this deepest hunger, you have to go to its source. Whew, that was a lot. Well, I'm heading to the barn now, so let me end with two things that you can do to increase your hunger for God. Wherever you feel like that is, there are two things you can do to increase your hunger for God. First, ask. Ask God to increase your hunger for God. Maybe even ask for some dissatisfaction with where you are. Maybe ask for the courage. You may need to step into some deeper waters. Maybe pray with Moses. Teach me your ways. Show me your glory. So ask. Keep on asking. 
seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking, and the doors of God's infinite kitchen will open before you. Second, exercise. Exercise creates hunger. If we don't do compassion, we won't have much hunger for the God who is compassionate. If we want everyone to just get what's coming to them, what they've earned, what they deserved, we won't be hungry for the God who's gracious and merciful. If we find the very real costs of love and faithfulness and forgiveness and justice just too high a price and decide to shop the idle stores for cheaper groceries, we'll never know hunger for God, nor will we experience the wonderful ways in which God satisfies the hunger He creates in us. Do you hunger to be met with compassion as life throws at you everything it can and does and will? To be met by graciousness, mercy, slowness to anger, to be met by abundant love and steadfast faithfulness, to be met by forgiveness, to be met by a mercy that is just and a justice that is full of mercy, to become a person with deep and deepening capacity for love, a person who can receive and give the kind of love that is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abundant in love and faithfulness, forgiveness, justice. Exercise those muscles. And this exercise will teach us two vital things. First, it will teach us that we regularly run out of gas, run out of strength, come up empty in all ways, especially the ways of God that are compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, full of love and faithfulness. We like to think of ourselves as pretty much partway there already, right? Just needing a bit of a God boost to get us over the line, right? You know, my compassion is kind of a decent C plus, And, uh, you know, when it comes to graciousness, solid B. And, you know, I'm just kind of okay. But you know what? Our situation really is more like this. We're standing on one side of the Grand Canyon. On the other side is the life that is characterized by compassion, graciousness, steadfast love, all the rest. And I can jump six feet and you can jump ten. Not going to get there on your own. The sooner our exercising brings us to the end of ourselves, the sooner we are met by the God who is the beginning of real life. And second, as we attempt this exercise, we will find ourselves drawn nearer to the God who is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving sin and rebellion and doing justice. And we will discover that God is these things, not to people who are already pretty compassionate and pretty gracious and pretty all of those other things. God is that way to his enemies. 
towards the rebellious and the disobedient, the apathetic and the indifferent, the dull of heart and the hard of heart. God is that way toward idol makers and idol worshipers. God's that way towards me, towards you, towards us. Ask and exercise. Asking leads to exercise. Exercise will deepen hunger, and that hunger will inexorably lead us to the fullness, to the completion of God's answer to Moses' prayer, show me your glory. God gave Moses the start of that answer, but not the whole answer. No one can see my face and live, the Lord told Moses. But now our God, who's both the source and the satisfaction of all that we hunger for, will bring our hungering souls to the foot of a cross where we will see the face and the glory of the God who revealed himself to Moses. For this God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Let us pray. Lord, you have made us for yourself. And our souls are hungry until we're satisfied in you. Forgive us our golden calves. Help us to see them, name them, and turn away from them. Forgive us for the ways we seek to satisfy our hungers apart from you. Please deepen, sharpen our hunger for you. Sharpen our hunger for your compassion, graciousness, abundant love, steadfast faithfulness, for your forgiveness and justice. May who you are be more deeply worked into who we are and how we live. Good Father, we ask, we ask, we ask, and we ask these things together in the name of Jesus, the bread of life, the rock split open on the cross so that we might see and know the glory of God in the face of Christ.